0: Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Over the next several weeks on the podcast, we'll be airing special encore presentations of the panels that were hosted at our National Law and Freedom Conference in Toronto earlier this year. First up, our panel on the future of Section Twelve of the Charter, following the Supreme Court of Canada's ruling last year in R. and B. Senet, featuring professors Yuanizu, Zhu, Lisa Kerr, and Stephen Penny, moderated by Jessica Correggian.
1: Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining uh, today. I hope you're not tired of me because I'm gonna be introducing our amazing moderator, Jess Corrigan, who's a good friend of mine and a partner at Castles, who is also a sponsor of this conference. Today is a panel on section 12, and I'm gonna start off by laying out the case that's going to be in part discussed by today's panel which if you're not familiar, it's the case of Bissonette. On May 27, 2022, the Supreme Court rendered its judgment in Bissonette. The case centered on the validity of section 745.51 of the Criminal Code, which allowed for a sentencing judge to stack periods of parole ineligibility for multiple murders. Under Canadian law, an adult convicted of first degree murder receives an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. When an accused commits multiple murders, the sentencing sentencing judge had the power under section 745.51 to impose consecutive periods of parole ineligibility for each murder in 25 year increments. So it's the stacking of parole ineligibility not quite the stacking of sentencing, although some uh, see this as a distinction without a difference. For instance, Alexandra Bissonette, the the accused in this case, murdered six people. So this was the mosque mass shooting in Quebec City, a, a terribly tragic and horrific event. So under section 745.51, the sentencing judge could have imposed a life sentence with no chance of parole for up to 150 years. Mr. Bissonette challenged, I believe he was sentenced actually to, to 40 years um, with stacked, stacked um, parole ineligibility, but the, um, the, he challenged even that. He challenged the constitutionality of the provision on the grounds that it constituted cruel and unusual punishment and thus unjustifiably violated his section 12 rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the court agreed unanimously and struck down this sentence on uh, stacking of parole ineligibility. I will now leave it to Jess to take it to the panelists and to introduce them. Good morning,
2: everyone. Uh, thank you, Christine, for that introduction. Uh, I'll start with some housekeeping. So we're going to begin. Uh, I'm going to introduce the panelists, and then I'm going to allow them to each give an opening statement of up to 10 minutes. And then we're going to move in to questions, and then open it up to the floor so whoever has questions can pick the brains of these intellectual giants. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, we're going to get some really unique perspectives today. Uh, and that's very uh, important. So I'm going to start by introducing uh, Lisa Kerr. Lisa Kerr is an associate professor at Queen's University uh, Faculty of Law, which is where I went to law school, and it's very near and dear to my heart. She teaches courses on criminal law, evidence, sentencing, prison law, uh, and she serves as the director of the criminal law group at Queen's Law. Uh, Professor Kerr earned her JD at the University of British Columbia. We won't hold that against you. (laughs) And uh, she clerked with the BC Court of Appeal and was an associate at Fasken-Martineau. She also served as a staff lawyer at the Prisoners Legal Services, Canada's only dedicated legal aid office uh, for prisoners, uh, and earned an LLM and JSD at New York University, where she was named a Trudeau scholar. I also won't hold that against you. <laughs> <laughs> Along with her academic publications, Professor Kerr regularly participates in judicial education and publishes opinion pieces in these areas. Uh, welcome Professor Kerr. Next up we have Yuan Jiu, uh, who is an assistant professor. Uh, of International Relations and International Law at Leiden University, a research fellow at Harris Manchester College, uh, Oxford, and a senior research fellow at Policy Exchange's Judicial Power Project. Uh, Before uh, going to Oxford, he obtained a BA from McGill University, where he was an Alan Oliver Fellow and Moyes Scholar, and a Master's of Philosophy from the University of Cambridge, where he was a Bacon Scholar. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> Professor Xiu's research is concerned with the notion of sovereignty within the context of international law. In particular, Yuan is interested in the influence of non-Western powers such as China on the development of legal understandings of sovereignty. He also maintains secondary research interests in his understandings of political history and public law and currently serves as a research associate at UBC's Center for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies. Last but not least, we have Stephen Penny, who is a professor at the Faculty Law of the University of Alberta. Born and raised in Edmonton, he received a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Law from the University of Alberta and a Master's of Law from Harvard Law School. He researches, teaches, and consults in the areas of criminal procedure, evidence, substantive criminal law, privacy, uh, law, and technology. He's co-author of Criminal Procedure in Canada and co-editor of Evidence, uh, Canadian Casebook. Anybody who has uh, been to law school has (laughs) no doubt had these textbooks. Uh, And he's a member of the advisory boards of the Alberta Law Review and Canadian Journal of Law and Justice and chair of the Centre for Constitutional Studies Advisory Board. Uh, Previously, he was the dean uh, at the Faculty Law of the University of Alberta. (laughs) Sorry, associate dean. I would I, I would have take, just taken it and run with it, but thank you for the clarification. Uh, a visiting professor at the University of New Brunswick, and a law clerk to Mr. Justice Gerard uh, Laferre of the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, if that wasn't enough for you, he is the winner of the Faculty of Law, Tevi Miller Teaching Excellence Award in 2020, and uh, the Law Society of Alberta and Canadian Bar Association Distinguished Service Award for Legal Scholarship in 2021. Welcome, uh, Professor Penny. Uh, so now I'm going to defer to our panelists to uh, each give an opening statement. Uh, Lisa will go first, followed by Yuan, followed by Steven.
3: Great, well thank you so much for that. Uh, everyone hear me, is that good? Uh, Good morning. Uh, I thought with my 10 minutes, what I would do is identify the key moves in the court's reasoning in Bissonnette and talk a little about the significance of the case to Section 12 doctrine generally. Um, I thought that would help sort of ground us in the actual decision before we move on to more in the way of commentary. But before I do that, I want to just lay down five quick points about the decision. First, this seems to have been an easy one for the court. It's unanimous. Um, It's decided, it's handed down two months after the hearing. It's plainly obvious at the hearing what the court's gonna do. And it's worth noting that unanimity is unusual in the context of section 12 cases. You can think of contemporary cases like Nure, Lloyd, Boudreaux. We find a divided court in each. Two, the legal holding in this case is extremely narrow in terms of the constitutional limit that it announces. Bisonet says, in effect, that the state cannot intentionally impose a sentence meant to ensure death in prison. Now, if death in prison is a byproduct rather than the aim of the sentence, that is okay, the court says. Three. The decision explicitly holds that the rest of the murder sentencing regime in the criminal code is constitutional. Now, that's not even really before the court, but they go out of their way to affirm a case from 1990 that says the life plus 25 years of ineligibility is constitutional. Now, that is a very tough mandatory sentence. That's what it took That was part of the trade-offs to abolish the death penalty in 1976. It's a very tough sentence. It results in many people dying in prison. Um, But the court kind of lets us know, don't bother bringing any more charter challenges to the rest of this regime, Okay. Um, Fourth, the court leaves open the possibility uh, of a future parliament going above 25 years. That is still on the table after Bissonnette. Uh, You know, a future parliament could make it possible for judges to go to 30, 35, it would have to depend on the age of the offender. Prisoners tend to die when they're 60, so you tend to need to ensure that someone's alive at the age of 59 so they can go in front of their parole board. That's really all Bessonette holds. Final point, and I know we know this, but it's worth emphasizing, this decision will not necessarily lead to the release of any person. The parole board is extremely risk-averse as a rule, and especially so with people on indeterminate sentences, people with uh, life sentences. And I could take you to the data on the almost non-existent amount of crime that these people commit, and that would confirm for you how risk-averse the parole board is. Anyone who would commit a crime really is not released. Um, And it is fair to say that anyone who would have received stacked parole under this provision, that they are facing an extraordinarily uphill battle should they be alive in 20 years, and should they seek a parole hearing, both of which are are far from certain. So my overall take is that Bisonet is an extremely minimalist response to a poorly designed law, a law that left judges with no good options for trying to fulfill the legislative intent behind it which was of course for judges to be able to respond to the greater levels of moral blameworthiness involved in killing multiple people. The law just did not enable a sensible approach to that task because it only allowed these blocks of 25 years. Okay, so let me get into the court's reasoning. Leading up to Bissonette. We can summarize the area by saying that the Supreme Court had set a very high standard for a breach of Section 12. Smith holds in 1987 the penalty has to be grossly disproportionate to the penalty that would be proportionate. Later cases reject arguments in favor of a lower standard. It was tried you know, something closer to the appellate standard, disproportionality, merely unfit. The court says no, keeps that high standard. But Smith simultaneously allows this forgiving procedure for claimants, allowing claimants to make use of what comes to be known as the reasonable hypothetical device. Um, Now, uh, there's a big discussion. It's probably the most controversial part of Section 12 doctrine. We may talk about it more later. Suffice to say, it was a hugely significant move. Every single mandatory minimum that the Supreme Court has struck down has been done not on the basis of the offender in the case at bar. It was done on the basis of a reasonable hypothetical, one advanced by counsel and accepted by the court. But, Bissonnette, it's not a mandatory minimum case. The judges had discretion as to whether to stack the parole ineligibility. And we've seen judges decline to do it. One prominent example, Bruce MacArthur, a great candidate for a 175 year sentence if we've ever heard of one and the judge declines to do it. He says, I refuse to engage in the symbolism of it. Now, many thought this discretion would save the provision, and that's really at the heart of the submissions of the government lawyers before the court. One thing was clear, the reasonable hypothetical device, which has been so powerful in the hands of those challenging these laws, sentencing laws, would have no place in the case because judges would never have to stack the parole ineligibility. No, there was sort of no world in which they would have to do that for an inappropriate case. So how does the court get around the fact that this wasn't mandatory? And perhaps more importantly, how could we say that this penalty was grossly disproportionate for Mr. Besanette If this guy dies at the age of 60, which is of course the average age of death for prisoners, it'll be a mere 30 years or so for him in prison. Many people are sitting in Canadian penitentiaries today for that length of time or longer. And the gravity of his offense, it's almost unspeakably high, taking the lives of six men peacefully at prayer, acting out of pure hate, ignorance, Islamophobia. How could this penalty be grossly disproportionate for him We might argue it's too light rather than too harsh. What the court does, and this is the key move, and a new move for Section 12, is distinguish between two kinds of Section 12 cases. And with this move, the question in Bissonnette is no longer whether it's too long of a penalty for him or for any other offender. With this approach, the court adopted a framework that Ben Berger and I had proposed in an article about the structure of Section 12. The court takes up this framework, agrees that there are two prongs to Section 12. We we called it two tracks, but the court switched it to prongs, very disappointing. Um, But the first prong, which we can call the severity prong, is the one we know. We've had lots of cases under this prong. These are the mandatory minimum cases. And those cases look at the question of whether there's too much punishment, whether there's a severity problem, too large of a fine, too long of a prison term. The second prong has a different focus. The focus there is on the type of punishment, whether the kind or method or type of punishment is unacceptable on its face. Perhaps the lash, lobotomization, castration, capital punishment. Under this prong, which we can call the method prong, the concern is not with the amount of an otherwise legitimate method of penalty, fines, or imprisonment. The problem wouldn't arise when too many lashes are inflicted. The problem would be that the lash is cruel and unusual in any amount. So what's the test for the second prong? The court said the test is whether the penalty is incompatible with human dignity and I'm going to say more on that at the very end. What is really powerful or notable about the structure of the second prong and why it was essential uh, for the court to rely on it in Bissonnette is because the focus is no longer on the offender and no longer on the offense. That's the stuff of prong one the mandatory minimum cases that are looking at really standard sentencing factors, moral blameworthiness, the harm caused, mitigation. Under prong two, the focus is on the legitimate arsenal of sanctions available to the state. So if we we resurrected the death penalty, the question under section 12 wouldn't be whether any offender is bad enough to receive the penalty. It would be whether it is compatible with human dignity such that the state can ever legitimately make use of it. Now, it's fair to say that the second prong was not clearly articulated in the jurisprudence prior to Bissonnette, and that may lead some to the charge that the court made up new law in a way that's illegitimate, and there's two things to say about that. First, the structure of Section 12 was not clearly articulated before Bissonnette, largely for historical and political reasons. Canada abolished capital punishment legislatively, we moved away from corporal punishment long before the charter. These cases just weren't necessary. Now, the sec- and the other thing to say is that the second prong is really the heartland you know, conservative originalist understanding of cruel and unusual punishment. The idea that the provision prohibits cruel penal methods, that reading is exactly what we meant to adopt with section 12, and it has a long lineage in constitutional thought well before 1982. So I don't think you can disagree on the validity of this prong, nor on the fact that it's the role of judges to interpret and enforce it in a constitutional democracy, but you might still disagree about whether life without the possibility of parole qualifies as cruel and unusual punishment, okay? Whether it really is incompatible with human dignity, whether it really is degrading and dehumanizing, Maybe for you this is not an obvious bedfellow with the lash or capital punishment. So let me end by unpacking what the court says about it. It says that a law is cruel and unusual when it denies human dignity. It says having dignity is connected to having a degree of agency and autonomy and the possibility of redemption. Now the court says the law can be putative, it can be tough, it can express condemnation. It ought to express condemnation. 25 years is fine before you can go in front of the parole board, the court says. But a sentence that is designed to ensure death in prison is what crosses the line and betrays these values of human dignity. In this part of its reasoning, the court also says, also considers the experience of this form of confinement that it is a monotonous, futile existence, that it entails psychological suffering akin to being on death row. So a sentence that is designed to ensure death in prison changes the character of the imprisonment. And it's crucial to note that this distinct character of imprisonment, it's not something that just kicks in at your 26th year. It changes the character of imprisonment throughout. Your life and your imprisonment are necessarily meaningless from day one to you know, day 9,000. And the court also mentions briefly that as a result of this kind of imprisonment, that prisoners sentenced under this law have no incentive to conform to prison rules. Now, the court doesn't expand really much on that. um, But I'll end with this point, because I think it's a really interesting point that draws our attention not only to the experience of prisoners, but to the perspective of prison staff. And I do think we have to spare a thought for those who work in prisons, it's something we often don't do when we're talking about sentencing policy. We have to remember there's security staff there, but there's also a large uh, body of programming staff. There are teachers, nurses, psychologists, indigenous elders, institutional parole officers. How does their work environment change when we send them offenders who will be there for 30 years with zero reason to follow the rules, let alone attempt to be positive contributors. A life without parole sentence is basically saying to an offender, it does not matter what you do in prison. You could find God, and you could counsel your your fellow inmates on the right way to live for the next 20 years. Or you could murder two prison guards. No matter what happens, the legal system has no interest in it and we will never again open your file. So I think that is the one and only kind of prison sentence that the court in Bisonet says is unconstitutional. And with that, I'll pass it along. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Lisa. I'm gonna pass the floor now to Yuan.
4: Uh, Good morning, thank you for being here. Um, As um, I have noticed, I'm not a a criminal lawyer. Uh, I'm I'm doing international law, and I think what happened was the organizers probably confused me with my co-author, Carrie Sun, who's sitting there, uh, who's who's actually the international law panel. I mean, he's the Asian with glasses, right? Which I know is like well I mean Asian whatever but uh, but uh, so, so apologies for uh, for any sort of a, 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 a unintentional display of ignorance. Uh, many 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 lawyers will say well international law that's fake that's made up right and they, you know to some extent to some extent it's true but that's fine because a lot of section twelve jurisprudence is also made up and I think nowhere do we see this more clearly than this in it. Uh, But but before getting to the technical analysis and the uh, and the normative analysis of the case I really want to describe what happened. And on the 29th of January, 2017, when Alexandre Bissonnette had breakfast, he brought the internet, he had dinner with his parents on famille, and then he walked to the Quebec City mosque and the cultural center, and he, in front of it, he paused, he took out his gun, and he murdered two men in cold blood, and then he walked into the prayer room of the center, and he took out another gun, and he started shooting again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and after 10 times, he took out another gun, and he continued to, to, to shoot. 19 people were wounded, six were murdered. And he did so because of pure hatred. He hated the Muslims and he wanted to kill as many of them as possible. Now, I have indulged in this description of what happened because I think when, when, when we discuss things like Section 12, sentencing policy, B. As, uh, as a Supreme Court case, there is this tendency to go to a certain level of, abst- of abstraction where we really forget what is at stake. Now, I have a very old-fashioned view that cases have to do to some extent, with the, uh, uh, the dispute between parties at hand. And I think it's very important, before we engage in any further discussion of the technical nature to remember what exactly was done to those people that they are out of pure hatred. And I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Uh, now, uh, I could really sort of spend an hour unpacking the judgment and just pointing out all the internal flaws and, uh, and the contradictions and so on, but uh, I'm just going to stick to a couple of them because I think it's otherwise, a bit Uh, uh, too much. For instance, uh, one of the reasons the uh, the court struck down that provision of the criminal code which enabled uh, uh, the stacking of uh, life sentences was that it would, I quote, uh, bring the administration of justice into disrepute and undermine public confidence in the rationality and fairness of the criminal justice system. A punishment that can never be carried out is contrary to the fundamental values of Canadian society. Now, the argument here is basically, a, nobody lives for 150 years, and if we were to sentence people to prison that long, the public would, uh, ha, uh, would lose confidence in, in the justice system. And, and um, I mean, this, this argument doesn't really, doesn't really survive scrutiny for myself for more than five seconds. Imagine if Parliament had said that instead of a, a sentence stacking provision that it had introduced what the Americans call life imprisonment without parole, that is to say, if Parliament had amended the criminal code to uh, allow judges to sentence a, a person to die in prison, uh, that would not be an impossible sentence to carry out, right? It's not 150 years, it's you're in prison until you die. Uh, and that would seem to, in its face, meet the uh, objection of the Supreme Court, but I don't think anybody here would argue that the Supreme Court would actually allow this sentence uh, 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 to stand. So this argument is really uh, uh, bullshit. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, there's also something else quite interesting here, which is the notion of public confidence. Now, I'm always very skeptical when appellate courts say, well, if we do this, the public is going to lose faith in the justice system, because the question is, which public is this? Is, it a, is this the Canadian public, as we understand it, the collectivity of people who live in Canada, or is this the imaginary Canadian public, which judges like uh, love to invent to support the rhetorical point, uh, points? In 2022, a poll showed that 51% of Canadians were in favor of that penalty, and 37% were opposed to it. I think it's fair to say that the Canadian public, uh, although perhaps not as punitive as the American public, um, uh, is not exactly stuffed on crime in any uh, a generally understood sense: Are we really meant to believe that this public would lose confidence in the justice system because a mass murderer and a terrorist uh, was sent to prison for a very long time? Uh, to ask the question is to uh, is answered. And of course, I think we don't give enough credit to uh, to the public. They don't have law degrees, sure, but they are intelligent enough to know that people don't really live. More than 100 years at most, right? Uh, I think the public can be trusted to understand that a sentence of 150 years to life is not meant to be served out because of biological uh, fundamentals. It is meant to send a message of disapproval of so- uh, by the society to say that we disapprove of conduct such as mass murder. As criminal sentences have a have a communicative uh, and exemplary function, and that is, um, uh, 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 and I think the public is really quite intelligent enough to. To, uh, to understand this. And I would also ask, what is more detrimental to the public's confidence in the justice system? To have a sentence of 150 years which cannot be carried out, or to have life imprisonment, which actually doesn't mean life imprisonment. Which, which of those two concepts does greater violence to the English language and to our basic sense of, fundamental, uh, uh, of logic? Again, I think you are um, all able to see where I'm going here. but. Uh, uh, I, 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 and of course really the Supreme Court also doesn't believe its own logic right it says in the next paragraph or so well it's, it's okay to sentence an elderly murder to 25 to life even even if they're going to prison because because reasons because uh, Parliament has an interesting you know uh, 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 assurance disapproval and what the question is um, do elderly people have less a less of a claim to human dignity? Do elderly people have less of a claim to be protected against cruel criminal punishment? Uh, I mean, given the Supreme Court's jurisprudence and other errors, notably uh, as, as it relates to assisted suicide, I think it's probably not unreasonable to think that the Supreme Court does have a sort of ableist view of uh, 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 of human dignity of elderly people, but, you know, I, I, I'm just going to gloss over this. But look, this is all, you know, this doesn't really, this doesn't really matter. I could go on, on and on. I could also go on about how the uh, analysis of the Supreme Court uh, as regards to international Jurisprudence is badly flawed. They bad, badly misinterpreted the uh, the UK's ruling uh, in response to Hearst versus the United Kingdom, for instance. They do not mention the New Zealand example, right? New Zealand is a uh, progressive paradise where they amended the criminal code to, to specifically allow for uh, uh, left in prison without parole uh, in response to the Christchurch mosque shooting. The court just, uh, just doesn't talk about it. But you know, all this stuff is, you no know, it doesn't matter. Some law clerk wrote the judgment. He's probably, you know, like, uh, doing, a PhD somewhere where, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, it, it, it's, it's fine. The Supreme Court has written bad judgments before. It's going to write bad judgments, uh, you know, uh, in the future. Uh, I'm not too mad about this anymore um, after, uh, after all these years of shouting about judicial overreach. Uh, I really want to get to the more normative aspect of the judgment, which is this uh, a notion of uh, human dignity and the autonomy as understood by the Supreme Court. Uh, the court really likes this word, right, "human dignity." It uses, uses it seventy-two times, and of course, Section Twelve, as the court properly points out, was enacted to protect uh, criminal offenders from uh, 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 from, uh, 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 from having their human dignity violated. So that's you know, that's fine. Uh, but. Uh, Something which really struck my attention was the sentence, and I'm going to read it to you. It is degrading in nature, the sentence of, of stacked sentences. It is, is degrading in nature in that it presupposes at the time of its imposition that the offender is beyond, uh, is beyond redemption and lacks the moral autonomy needed for rehabilitation. Now this really embodies a view of crime which is sort of disease-based, right? It's, uh, it's like, oh, someone has done a crime, he's sick, there's no moral capability, he can be, he can be cured. Of, uh, 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 of this crime if we give him enough programs and send him to enough courses. Uh, and I think this is actually perversely, uh, actually undermines the, um, uh, at, at, at the human dignity of Mr. Bissonnette. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend and, uh, that I care very much about his human dignity as far as I'm concerned he should die, but, uh, but uh, moral autonomy is a two-way street, right? on that, when he went into the mosque, he was not under the influence of, you know, um, of some drug. He was not out of his mind. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He had full moral autonomy each time, each and every time he pulled the trigger out of pure and sheer hatred. And I think we are actually being actually quite patronizing here when we say, "Well, actually, you know, uh, we uh, we can cure you." We don't really allow the possibility that he really. very sincerely believe in the horrible ideology, uh, ideology which he spouses, uh, and that he cannot be cured, right? We have this idea that, oh, we can save you. Maybe we can't, and maybe, uh, and maybe think that we can actually undermines his moral autonomy. Uh, I just want to put this point out to you, and finally, I will uh, I'll just go to the point of the victims because the court uh, spent several paragraphs saying, "Look, this judgment doesn't undermine, uh, and it's not meant to undermine the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the dignity or the uh, worth of the lives of the uh, of the people who are taken." But if this punishment for one murder and the punishment for six murder at law is the same. You do not need to be a criminal lawyer to understand that this means that each murder, uh, if at each additional murder you get, you effectively get a discount. And I know people say, well, you know, he may never get out of prison, but I think if your best defense of this judgment is to say, well, it's uh, probably not going to change anything. That's not a very good judgment, is it? Uh, 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 this person appealed to the Supreme Court. His lawyer did so, this, presumably because they this thought that doing so would improve his position. And so, well, so I think 70 to 100 people who are who have stuck sentences, all of them are going to have their st- 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 sentence reviewed. I think he's it defies belief that, uh, to, to, to say that none of them is ever going to get out of prison. And I think this actually, uh, uh, and, uh, and this sort of cap on punishment actually does limit, uh, uh, does send a message that actually uh, 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 to society that additional victims are actually worthless because um, it is important to um, protect human dignity, of course, and that is why Section 12 was enacted. But the vindication of human dignity requires not only that we protect Um, uh, criminals from uh, cruel and unusual punishment. It requires that we um, vindicate the value of human life by imposing appropriate and proportionate punishment on those who infringe it. And the sentence of 25 years to life for one, two, six, a hundred murders simply will not cut it. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Yuan. Uh, That that was... Very interesting.
5: Uh, you're certainly getting different perspectives here. So
2: now I'm excited to hear from Stephen.
5: Uh, thank you very much. And is this on? Can you, can everybody, hear me? I don't think it's on, actually. It's on. Is it closer. on? Okay. Sorry, I got it. Just hold it closer. Okay, I will do that. Without causing feedback. <laughs> Positive feedback is welcome. Negative <laughs> feedback, <laughs> not so much. Don't want to hear it. Um, okay, thanks very much, and thanks very much for inviting me uh, to this conference. It's my first time here, and uh, it's been great so far. Uh, I'm going to begin with a proposition that I don't think should be very controversial, but you know, can never be certain these days. The application of liberal moral theory to Western criminal justice systems, including the one we have in Canada, I think has produced... I'm just going to speak loud. Um, okay, that, yeah, this one's a lot better has produced the most humane and ethical formal norm-enforcement regime ever devised by a large and complex society. I'm not saying Canada is number one on that list, I'm just saying we're, we're in the ballpark with other similar systems. And I think it does this in three chief ways. First, it better respects liberty in the simple million sense of freeing people to pursue their version of the good life in ways that do not cause any direct harm to others. Secondly, I think it more assiduously and accurately identifies the people who have caused direct harm to others. And then lastly, I think it affords such persons as much dignity on the whole as is compatible with a safe and well-functioning society. I think these are all good things. But, the liberal theory of criminal justice has never been especially popular. And the reason for this, I think, and maybe there are others, but this is one of the primary ones, is that human beings are hardwired for in-group norm enforcement and retributive punishment. And these deeply held instincts, perhaps more than any other feature of our kind of evolutionarily shaped psychology, the reason why we're able to cooperate so successfully and productively with non-kin. And as a consequence, I think in contemporary justice systems, uh, the liberal approach to criminal justice and crime is at best tolerated by many members of the public. But this tolerance, I think, hinges on two conditions. The first is the maintenance of a sufficient degree of social order and public safety such that most people perceive that they and their loved ones face minimal risk of serious victimization. And the second condition, which I think is most relevant to Section 12 of the Charter and the b decision, is the sense that the legal system takes victims and victimization seriously. And that includes a recognition that retribution or denunciation, whatever you want to call it, however visceral and non-instrumental maybe in a strict sense, is still a legitimate response to serious wrongdoing. And I think this retributive instinct, is most often expressed not by the courts in their kind of measured and nuanced articulation of sentencing principles, but rather by legislatures in kind of bluntly mandating that certain offenses and or offenders be harshly punished. Now, I don't doubt that in a democracy like ours that's tempered by the liberal tradition, and especially one that has expressly committed itself to judicially enforced constitutional limitations, that the courts are justified in subjecting such legislation to meaningful substantive review. Nor do I think the law that was struck down was a good one. In my opinion, it was unduly harsh, and it was certainly foolishly constructed. Maybe deliberately constructed, but I think foolishly. That said, it's my view that the Supreme Court and Bissonnette accorded too little weight to Parliament's legitimate retributive concerns and struck down a sentencing regime that despite its flaws was simply not cruel and unusual enough to justify overriding the democratic will. So now why do I believe that this unanimous decision was was wrong? Well, roughly it comes down to, I think what Professor Kerr has outlined, that it does not, under any circumstances, impose a mandatory period of parole ineligibility beyond 25 years, which is the maximum duration possible before this law came into force. In other words, judges have a discretion, or had a discretion, to impose or not impose a greater period in multiple murder cases. So as a result, if this legislation had been upheld, it would have been an error of law for any sentencing judge to impose a greater period of ineligibility if that would have been an unfit or disproportionate sentence. So for example, if a judge thought in the abstract that a 40-year period of ineligibility would be the best the fittest sentence, he or she would have had to impose a 25-year period because the only other option would be 50, which would be disproportionate and therefore unfit. So as, as Lisa's outlined, the Supreme Court had to find a way around this, right? And the way it did that was to say, a 50-year sentence will always be disproportionate, and that's really what we either have to buy or we have to sell. We have to accept or reject that. And I'm not sure, right? Is it the case that this will always be cruel and unusual to impose a life sentence uh, on someone who's committed multiple murderers? And I don't really know. Sentencing, I'll be honest here, is not my area of expertise, and I've always found it to be a bit of a black box. Like, how do we make these judgments about what people deserve and what's appropriate, and what's gonna meet all of the various goals of sentencing? So to me, the better question, at least initially, is, who gets to decide? And here I ask, what theory of judicial review would justify giving this decision to nine unelected officials? In what sense should people who've committed multiple murders be considered a kind of discrete and insular minority in need of protection from inhumane treatment by a majoritarian legislature? Now it's no doubt true that people who've (coughs) engaged in serious criminality are often reviled Uh, But the question is, is that revulsion unjustified? To what extent is it unjustified? Now keep in mind, we're not talking about a mandatory minimum sentence that has to be imposed for all persons who've committed a certain type of offense. In those types of cases, a court may be able to say, in effect, that while Parliament may have been justified in declaring that nearly anyone who committed this offense deserves this minimum sentence, Most people, I think, would agree, if they were informed of the relevant circumstances, that there may be some small minority of individuals who, if that sentence were imposed on them, it would be inhumane, it would be cruel, it would clearly be grossly disproportionate and inappropriate. So that's why I don't take much issue with the Supreme Court's gross proportionality jurisprudence as applied to mandatory minimum sentences, even on the controversial basis of reasonable hypotheticals, which I know some people find or take issue with. Now, when it comes to the mandatory minimum situation, I think you can cast this or frame it as a kind of democratic failure, a kind of information asymmetry problem that could in some cases justify corrective intervention by an admittedly kind of elite unelected body that's applying kind of consensus liberal principles. But I don't think any such malfunction occurred in this case. Parliament simply gave judges the choice, right the ability to impose a 50-year period when they themselves believed that it would be a fit and proportionate sentence and only in such circumstances. And in my view, even if I might disagree with those kinds of very harsh sentences, in, in part because of some of the reasons that Professor has outlined, I think Parliament should have been entitled give them that option. So I'll end there and look forward to uh, the further questions from the the moderator.
2: Thank you, uh, Stephen. Uh, So the first question, and uh, this one really is is important to me as a a, uh, practitioner of law. I often read decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada and I say, okay, but what's the answer? And and what's the test and how do I actually apply this in my actual practice? Or I read things and say this is so disconnected from the actual practice of law that I don't know what to do with it. Um, And and I've heard that's often the case with uh, criminal practitioners who are actually on the ground doing the job. So the first question is, do you think that the Supreme Court of Canada is the best forum in which to resolve fundamental questions about human dignity, or what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment? And to what extent does the Bissonette ruling reveal divergence in the legal profession about the constitutional role of the Supreme Court of Canada? And and Stephen, you just answered this a little bit, um, but by all means. I'm not not, not putting you on the spot, I'm saying whoever wants to answer this, please
5: go for it. Forward to hearing uh, what my colleagues have to, have to say. So let's maybe drill down a bit on this notion of human dignity. I don't think there's any doubt that that's something that has to be considered here. And what's your theory of human dignity? Well, the theory of human dignity that seems to be applied by the court, it's kind of an instantiation of a, a version of, I think, Christian ethical theory. I think uh, the Chief Justice even talks about repenting. It's a paragraph eight where he says, this objective is intimately linked to human dignity in that it conveys a conviction that every individual is capable of repenting, there's that word, and re-entering society." End quote. Now, I think that ethical theory has much to commend it. And I very much agree that the intrinsic kind of harshness of the criminal sanction needs to be tempered by values and emotions like compassion and a desire for rehabilitation when possible, possible, at least as a kind of aspirational goal. You know, retribution and denunciation are also important goals. They give voice to victims and their families and their uh, communities, uh, and also to the greater society's belief that certain acts may betray the social contract to such an extent as to warrant kind of a permanent exclusion from society. And in fact, um, you know, to my knowledge, I'm not an anthropologist or, you know, prehistorian, but. I think that's pretty much been a feature of every society that's ever existed, so far as we can tell. At least in some circumstances, people will do something that justifies, within the norms of that community, their permanent exclusion, whether that's by killing them uh, or by permanently banning them, shunning them, excommunicating them. So that's, that's very harsh, and maybe we've grown beyond that, but on such a fundamental question of values, especially in a case where I think the value systems that are in conflict break down pretty starkly along class and educational lines. Right? If you look at the polling data, and I think you correlate that with socioeconomic status or level of education, you're gonna see some pretty stark divergences there. And it's precisely in those types of cases I think courts ought to be very cautious and very reluctant to substitute their moral judgments and preferences for parliaments.
3: Great, well, I'll take a stab at this as well. Should I do that one? Okay. So first, I guess I would say, I I do think of life imprisonment sentence as one involving permanent exclusion. Um, The reason there is parole eligibility is really for the functioning of the prison system. I wish the court in Bissonnette had spoken more about that. Um, And the material was in front of the court from submissions by the Prison Lawyer Association, by the Queen's Prison Law Clinic, talking about how having no parole date, how it impacts conditions, programming, isolation, how it impacts staffing, how you are you supposed to house these people, what kind of dangers and risks do they present. It's a very distinct kind of prisoner, and, and that was put to the court. And I frankly wish it would have been uh, that instead of using these fancy words of dignity, agency and autonomy, because I think people read that and go, I don't give a shit about his dignity, agency or autonomy. But I think if you can turn your mind to the prison context and understand how dysfunctional these sentences are for the prison system. I think that's more convincing for a lot of people. And why do I say it's permanent exclusion? Because the, the, the vast majority of people, if not all, who mu- murder multiple people, it, they're gonna be in custody for their entire lives. Um, absent, really, a miracle. I don't wanna suggest the parole board doesn't approach each and every case with a fresh and open mind. But I can tell you that cases we're talking about today Uh, practically speaking, as someone very familiar with how the parole board operates and how it makes its decisions, the absence of procedural rights, the fact that what they can do at the parole hearing, it's permanent exclusion for these folks. But I was disappointed that I think the prison remains a bit of a black box, even in Bisonet, a decision all about the legitimacy of a particular sanction of of imprisonment, and that's a feature, I think, of our legal system. On this question of who should decide, I mean, I very much agree with everything Steven said around the legitimacy of feelings of vengeance um, and the d- demand for justice from the public um, and how harmful these offenses are and that our legal system has to give expression to that. I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, I think that's why this sentence was explicitly sanctioned, the first-degree murder sentence of life imprisonment, uh, why that was sanctioned by the court, because of the need to give voice to that need for condemnation and denunciation. But if you're saying that let's leave to Parliament the questions around what is cruel and unusual punishment, well, that is saying, Let's not have any limits on cruel and unusual punishment. Let's be clear, that's what that means, because this is the rights of mass murderers is not a hill that any politician is going to die on. OK? And you can look to Bisonet itself, right? The Liberal government instructed its lawyers to forcefully defend this law, and they did. When it was handed down, David Lemetti immediately tweeted his disappointment with the decision. Now, he didn't go as far as the conservative leader hopefuls of that moment, uh, Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev, who immediately said they would invoke the notwithstanding clause. Right? And think about that for a second. It's never been done by a federal government. They're going to do it in order to avoid a two-hour administrative hearing 25 years down the road, where at the end of the hearing, this gentleman is going to be taken back to his cell. But they're gonna invoke the notwithstanding clause over that. So I think it tells you this is not exactly a very healthy political environment. And if we are going to have Section 12 as a constitutional protection, it requires the courts to decide. There's not a politician in this country that stood up and said Bissonnette is a great decision. Now, if you wanna talk about some other Section 12 cases, Um, where the court maybe goes too far and maybe we can talk about progressive capture of the court. You know, there are decisions like Boudreaux where we might have that conversation. Bissonnette is just the wrong target. This is a very narrow limit. And it, it really is just a rule that if the point is to say to someone what you do in prison doesn't matter, we'll never open your file again, that's the limit the court articulated. But permanent life in custody for the rest of your life the court has no problem with that it's just that your file and your actions and who you are and what you do remains relevant during your incarceration
4: <clears throat> all right thank you right, and again i would just like to perhaps answer this last point first very quickly and say well look if the decision didn't matter why was so much effort uh, uh, invested in, you know, uh, in overturning that bit of the criminal code, right, uh, did we just all waste our time for what is essentially, apparently, a, a sort of an intellectual exercise of no uh, uh, meaning whatsoever. That's a very interesting way of defending this decision, I think. Now, to uh, to um, to go back to your question, right, uh, I think there's a the consensus among the Canadian yeah. labor profession that basically the courts are, you know, staffed by philosopher kings and they have to make all the big decisions of public policy and uh, uh, and uh, in, in, you know, uh, uh, fundamental questions about human dignity and so on, right? We have a parliament in Canada, right? It, 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 and, and you know, it looks—it has the appearance of parliament. You know, we have MPs that are elected. We have a green carpet. And there's a speaker in a gown and ask questions, and at the end of the day, they have the enormous power to decide. Maybe, maybe to decide to increase the minimum period of parole eligibility from 25 years to 30 years. Maybe that's the extent of their power, apparently. Right? We don't have uh, a parliamentary democracy in any meaningful sense of the world. Uh, of the world, my uh, my foreign friends are always horrified when I show them uh, videos of what happens in the House of Commons because it's you know it, 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 at this point it could just just be sort of tourist attraction. Uh, <clears throat> Um, now, um, I don't think anybody is saying that Section 12 should allow for you know, torture or mutilation and so on, right? I don't think anybody is saying that courts should never enforce Section 12. That is not the structure of our Constitution uh, as much as I may wish it to be otherwise. Uh, but. <clears throat> Look, if we wanted a court of philosopher kings who do who who do political who do political philosophy who who talk about dignity and who who do liberal theory, we would not be appointing lawyers, would we? We would be appointing political theorists, right? Philosophers. I have lots of political theorists friends who are unemployed. Each and every one of them knows more political theory than any of the Supreme Court justices, right? Because when you're a lawyer, when you're a judge, you don't learn any political theory. At, At most you know, you might have done one or two papers in undergrad, which I think explains why, if you show the bit, sort of moral reasoning, which passes for um, analysis from the Supreme Court uh, to people who actually do part the theories, so, although, uh, uh, they'll find it very funny, right? Um, it, uh, 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 and actually, just something which I think has been reported very much. When Bissonnette was being sentenced in the Quebec Superior Court, uh, the sentencing judge uh, gave a five-hour sentencing speech where he went over the whole of Western political philosophy from Aristotle to Montesquieu to Locke to, uh, 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 to Mayo and so on, right? Um, and it, just imagine, you know, being a victim, being the family of a victim, being somebody who is in a wheelchair and sitting in that court, uh, because he shot you, he's gonna shock you, and he's sitting in that courtroom and listening to a sophomoric uh, lecture about political theory based on what the judge half learned 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when he was in, in CGEP, uh, because in C- <laughs> uh, be- because in Quebec, you, you actually do have, have a mandatory philosophy class, right? I, 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 I actually recognize where the judge got his uh, talking points from. Uh, from. Yeah, uh, uh, it's actually very jarring. So, again, I think the question is really, what sort of society do we want? Do we want a society where we are ruled by philosopher kings, in which case we should really rethink judicial appointments because we're clearly not getting the best? Uh, <laughs> what do we say? These questions of political, uh, of deep moral and political import should be decided democratically with some judicial limits, but fundamentally by our elected representatives. And i just finish by saying this. Uh, In uh, in survey, which was the president's voting case, Justice Gomtzi actually, in his dissent, proposed a reasonable compromise. He proposed the future which we never adopted, where he said that when there are issues which are not amenable to scientific proof because they involve fundamental questions of philosophical, political, and social considerations which are open to reasonable disagreement, courts should not, Leave the space entirely, but courts should be very mindful of the fact that there may be, and that that there are going to be, different competing considerations, all of which may be contradictory or incompatible, but which are unreasonable. This was in 1996, I think. And I think it's a great shame that our court decided to go for the maximist version of uh, 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 upper class men and women who are in the same profession deciding these questions based on the reading of liberal theory, as opposed to this uh, much more reasonable compromise which Justice Concey proffered, uh, but which was rejected, sadly.
5: Thanks
0: for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. This week's episode was a special Encore presentation from our National Law and Freedom Conference. This year's conference was sponsored by The National Post, Miller Thompson LLP, Baker and McKenzie LLP, LexisNexis Canada, Jordan Honickman Barristers, Castles Brock and Blackwell LLP, and the McDonald Laurier Institute. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor, is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.